Hi, this is Life Among the Shelves, a podcast about what we do in special collections, libraries, and archives. I'm Macy Love. And I'm John Henry Adams, and we work in special collections at the University of Missouri. Today, fixing what's broken, repairs and enclosures. Special collections seem to hold, well, special items. With rare books, maps, and more, I would guess they need special care compared to things in regular circulation. When a book nearly 300 years old starts to show its age, what can be done to help it? With such a diverse collection of rare items, how does caring for them differ? It seems like having someone with the knowledge to care for all kinds of rare items would be important to not only libraries, but also archives and other fields. What do we do here in special collections to help preserve everything? So to start with, I think that we need to, just because some of the terms in this area can be a little slippery, there are two different categories, right, where we talk about conservation, which is when you're doing an item level thing, when you're repairing something, or when you're in general just trying to keep it going. And then there's preservation, which is collection-wide, right? You know how we talked last time about item level inventories and folder level inventories. And so preservation is the folder level. And that's when we're really looking at things like climate control and in general, the conditions of the space that the item is kept in. So now that we've got those big complicated terms sort of under our belts, we also do a lot of work to educate ourselves and educate our users, right? How do you handle the material properly, because that does fall under that general umbrella of preservation. How do we make sure that the item is not being damaged on a consistent level? So for the big picture, I think that you should talk to Michelle Dorsey. She's our preservation librarian, and she's really knowledgeable about this. She's been doing this work for 20 years, so she knows her stuff, and I think that she'll give you a really great foundation. The first person I'm going to talk to today is Michelle Dorsey. She is the Preservation Librarian for Special Collections. Why is preservation so important? What is your overall goal when repairing objects? Preservation isn't an item level activity as much as it's a host of activities. Although repairing items is important, one of the more important activities is environmental control of our storage areas, or for instance, disaster planning. We're concerned about how items are stored, if they're in storage cabinets or in enclosures that provide the appropriate protection to stabilize the materials for the long term. Really, our overall goal is to extend the lifespan of all the cultural materials in our collection. And the requirements for different types of materials may be different. So that's something you have to take into consideration as well. What kinds of repairs do you do? For the general collection, we do a variety of repairs from tightening the hinges to basic mending of tears and replacing the spine. For the general collection, we are really looking to prolong the circulating uh, circulation of the materials, the ability to continue checking them out. Even the general collection is a huge investment for the university, so we do invest quite a bit of time. For special collections, we have to be a little more careful. So in-house, I, I do COSA repairs. 
pears. Kozo paper is made from bark and it, its fibers are longer and stronger and it is commonly used for conservation. And I use a variety of adhesives to do repairs on paper, on damaged covers. In some cases, depending on the priority of the material, I can take compromised book blocks to the text box, all the pages. If the, the signatures are coming apart, I can remove all the old thread and adhesive and re-sew it and reinsert it into the case. I've been known to do some, you can call it spine repair. It's also called rebacking. It's replacing damaged spine material. So those are the things that I can do in-house, sort of a beginning and intermediate level conservation treatment. But for the higher level conservation treatments, we do outsource to a local conservator for those types of repairs. Do you think that the education of preservation was more widespread? It would be easier to implement these kind of things? I think it would. For instance, there are a lot of library schools that do not have a preservation component, and I do not think MU has one right now. I am new to my position as a preservation librarian, and I have two internships. So we're trying to provide that, but on a large scale right now, we can't. In addition, educating just educating the staff on how to properly handle materials, how to shelve them properly and provide the proper book supports, how to load a book cart properly. All these things combined can help preserve the materials for longer. There's, there's unintentional damage done by people who don't mean to cause the damage, but it happens because they don't know how to properly handle materials. With so many things in a collection, how do you prioritize which items get attention first? As I, as I mentioned, there's 4 million print copies in the circulating collection, print volumes. And there's, I would say, last I looked, 100,000 in special collections. And we just don't have the resources. I don't have the knowledge. I'm a preservation librarian. I don't have the knowledge of the collection that perhaps subject librarians have. They're the, they're the liaisons between different campuses, different entities on campus, different departments, and the libraries. They're called selectors as well because they work with faculty to develop certain areas of the collection, different subjects within our collection. And I rely on them to tell me the most commonly used materials in instruction, scholarship, research. I also rely on them to tell me which materials are, are not only rare content-wise, but as artifacts themselves. And that also directs how I conserve the item. Is it just a structural issue that I need to address or do I need to recognize and mimic the historical, for instance, historical binding method? It's how these materials are used in instruction as well as the, the intrinsic value of the materials that is important and it dictates my decision making. Are you having to go back and kind of fix these issues from the past? Yes. When we can, if the item is historically important enough, I, we can't address all of them. There is a large number of items. And what I'm going to address, because it's within my control to do so, are those items that were once in the general collection, but have since become rare and moved to the special collections. Those are a small enough portion that I can turn my attention to. But a lot of the items in the general collection, we, we can't address because we just don't have the resources. And it's sad to say. What is something about your work that you wish more people knew? 
I think it's a I think it's really challenging at times, but not just for preservation for for librarians in general. We have tried to do the same amount of work with reduced resources. And there's a point where things will have to give. We just can't keep providing the same level of service, be it reference or preservation of information resources, digitizing the collections, making things accessible. Eventually, something has to give. And I I think that's the most challenging thing is knowing that there's, there's so much information that hasn't been digitized that will be lost. And we can't digitize it all and make it accessible. We'll be lost if we don't do something about it. And even if we digitize it, there are preservation issues with digital materials. So it's, it's ongoing. It is very frustrating and overwhelming at times. So what are enclosures? So enclosures are basically sturdy, either hard covers that we use for, for like pamphlets to, give, to keep them sturdy and protected and, and allows us to shelve them and keep them from getting damaged during shelving. Phase boxes are four flap enclosures made out of board that is either neutral or has a a buffer, I believe it's calcium carbonate, that neutralizes acids that are produced through de- chemical deterioration. And we put damaged items, items that we that are too brittle to be conserved, and we didn't have the resources back then to deal with it. So we created what at the time librarians called phase boxes because they thought, we'll just put them in these handy little boxes and eventually we'll get to them. But the problem increased and the resources decreased for preservation. And so phase boxes became permanent boxes, but we still, or at least I still call them phase boxes. And so MU Libraries received a grant that allowed us to start mass producing or making more of them in-house. So we make our own phase boxes in-house. We make our own pamphlet binders in-house. Clamshells are are basically, there's a, there's a box that, and then a spine and another slightly larger box that closes over the first tray or box. And it looks like a clam shell. And you put the book in the smaller tray or box, and then you close it over, the, the larger tray closes over the smaller tray. And that creates a nice little box. I mean, you see them sometimes in, I don't know, maybe movies or for fancy, expensive volumes. They'll come with their own clamshell. And there's also slip cases, but we don't make slip cases. So you've had your conversation with Michelle. Any questions? Why are enclosures useful? Many reasons. So one of them is just physical protection, right? Whenever you take books off the shelf, they're obviously going to, just through friction, rub against each other. So putting an enclosure around them keeps that from happening. They're also going to offer physical support. So if a book is particularly fragile, then they can, well, they, they, keep, it, uh, they keep it supported, right? It's got an extra set of boards. Sometimes it can also help if you keep an object under pressure, if it's swelling or what have you, 
sometimes keeping it clamped shut in an enclosure is going to help it in the long run. And then one of the aspects that you maybe don't think about that is less obvious is that it creates a layer between the item and the outside environment. So putting things in boxes helps stabilize them and it helps slow their reaction to humidity or temperature shifts because although we always want things to be very stable, that doesn't always work. We live in Missouri. Missouri is not known for its stability in terms of either temperature or humidity. And so enclosures are going to add just that extra little layer of protection by surrounding the object with something that's going to slow the impact of those factors. Michelle mentioned that materials can be buffered. What is buffering? So buffering is when you take alkaline substances and you use them to negate acid. So you basically create a, a reservoir of alkaline. Alkaline items have a high pH, right? Because acid is our real concern. And so what will happen is that acid, whether it's being generated or is just statically there, will react with the alkaline substances and result in pH 7, which is better, right? Because pH 7, there's not going to be these chemical reactions. And you can use, you can buffer an item specifically, right, by saturating it with this, you know, washing it in alkaline substances to clear out the acid. But you can also buffer the enclosures, which will then negate acid that they're in contact with, which is also great. So it's a general way of slowing acid-related deterioration. So Special Collections has Michelle, but does Archives have anyone like her? Not really, right? Michelle is, and we're very lucky to have her for this reason, Michelle is specialized in preservation and conservation. And Archives doesn't have that. They kind of do their preservation and conservation work as they go along. And I think you should talk to Anselm Hulsbergen. He is the university archivist, and I think he'll have a lot of insights for you. The second person I'm going to talk to is Anselm Hulsbergen. He is the university archivist. What kind of repairs do you do? What kinds of enclosures do you use in archives? Well, I would make a distinction between repairs and enclosures. Enclosures are sort of our bread and butter. Everything that we do with archival records deal with the enclosure in some sense. So we have, I think the two basic ones are the, the folder and then the other is a box. And mostly we deal with sort of pre-made file folders. That's the very basic piece of office paper can be kept secure. And in a way, that's what enclosures do for us. They provide protection from handling and in storage and from the environment, especially from light for some, some materials. And then they also allow us to sort of follow in how a collection is arranged or created even from the originator, the person that created the records. So they oftentimes, the basic file folder is the file unit. It's sort of the, the essential, the lowest level, if you will, of of a collection. So we deal less with individual items in archives, but more with a bunch of records together that oftentimes are held in this file unit or in a file folder. So that's how, how we use enclosures. We tend to use pre-made enclosures. We'll make some when, and that's usually has to do with if it's an odd size, it's an odd shape that needs to be addressed. So we have a really large poster or something like that. We will also make enclosures for materials. Let's say we get an architectural drawing and they tend to be big, sometimes three, three by four feet. And collection of those for a project can number into thousands of sheets. So if we have 
thousand projects times a thousand sheets, we would need a lot of flat storage, which would be the ideal way to, to store something like that paper, big pieces of paper. So what we do is we tend to roll those, but we don't roll them on themselves. So we'll take a, a core of cardboard, we'll do a low density MPE wrapper of that core, and that will give the paper a buffer from the, the cardboard core, and it will allow the paper to have some support so it's not being rolled on itself and there isn't that much pressure on it. And then we'll encase all of that in another piece of plastic tubing. And then those go into long boxes and can be stored more conveniently offsite than they could in very expensive flat storage and then very heavy flat storage when you have a lot of them. So that's th those are the types of enclosures that we deal with and the, sort of the extent to which we will make an enclosure. And it's always specific to the material. In terms of repairs, we don't do that much conservation. We do more sort of generally preservation. But when we do, usually limited to mending of paper and we'll use tissue. Usually we use heat set. Initially, when I started, the person that I learned with was still using uh, like Japanese paper with some little wheat starch as a paste to join those. But we've moved over to a heat set um, that has an adhesive on it. And the real concern there is that it can be undone. So it's really a way to get a piece of paper, let's say, into a stage so that it could be encapsulated maybe, so we could put it in between mylar or, or polyester sheets so that it can be used still and can retain its form without further damage. And in terms of other repair work, we do some humidification of paper. Oftentimes this, you'll find a collection of photographs that has curled. So we introduce a little bit of moisture. We put, we get just a plastic container and put a screen about halfway up on the container, put a little bit of water in the bottom, and then we allow over a period of time, the moisture to be absorbed by the paper material. And then, and then we put it, we flatten it, put it under in between paper to pull some of the moisture back out, and then it goes into storage. So th those, I would say, are the two main repairs that we do. You mentioned heat setting. Mm -hmm. What is that? Can you explain more of what that is? Sure. The paper, and we use a specific brand, Filmoplast, that uses a Japanese paper, and it has a, a coating that becomes adhesive under heat. So we usually a method of a, it's like a little, little tiny iron. It looks like a little shoe iron or something like that. And then you just, you place that with a couple of buffer sheets of paper on the surface that you're tacking down, and then you just tack it along the line of the mend. And it's usually very minimal areas. You don't, you don't cover the entire, let's say you have a, a diploma and there's a rip through the middle. You would just go around the, along that line, not sort of cover more of it because there is a little bit of opacity to it. So you can obscure some of the material. So you want, you want to be careful. Do you ever have to undo other people's preservation work or have you ever run into anything where you have had to alter what someone else has done? Well, we do receive collections that, that weren't intended to be archival. So people will have put together, you know, a scrapbook or I mean, scrapbooks are a good example. A lot of people do that. And, and it is, in a sense, preservation for them, but not preservation in the, in the sense that the archives might have sort of long-term preservation. So we have had instances where there, um, we've had materials that are adhered to or have backings of, let's say, construction paper tends to be pretty acidic and will start damaging the materials that are in there. So if you have a binder, for instance, and maybe the, the plastic enclosures aren't the type you would want for permanent or long-term preservation. So in that case, we would go in and we would sort of take apart or undo what was done um, simply to allow us to store things, not necessarily more conveniently, but more effectively for long-term preservation. With so many things in a collection, how do you prioritize which items get attention first? It's a good question. We probably try to address um, things as they come in. 
So as we get new collections in, we'll make a decision on, on what needs to be done urgently. And so an example here would be we hauled a bunch of records out of the out of a garage of a former board of curator who wanted us to, to have his records. And they had gotten wet over time. So we had some old, fortunately inactive mold. And then as we processed the collection, first of all, we didn't want to keep that collection in with our other materials. So we made some preservation choices at that point. In that case, it turned out the easiest thing for us to do was to make copies rather than try to clean each of the pages since there are so many that were affected. So it's really what's presented to us. And then obviously when we go into storage and pull materials out for use at times, there's a, there's a tear in there that we didn't know. So we put it in an enclosure for, to allow people to use it. Or if something gets heavy use, we might make a digital copy, a surrogate to use in its stead. So the, those are really the, the aspects. New things that come in, get it examined for what we need to do with them. And then as collections sort of come back to, come back to life as they're being used, we'll work with them. When I toured the archive spaces, I noticed that you have a lot of different machines for working with different materials. What are they for and how do you keep them running? Well, the machines that we have are usually um, related to audiovisual formats and we keep them running by using them and by regular maintenance. So we have a, a film editing table that needs to be fired up every month just to make sure that all the gears are still working. You need to check the bulb and, and things like that. And some things over time just, just will wear out. In that case, you either require another machine, we try to have it fixed, which gets more and more difficult with time. And sometimes we're lucky we already have a couple machines that we can either use to create one whole one or just switch to a second machine. How does changing technology affect your work? Well, that's a good example. Just We just talked about machinery that we have, uh, equipment that we use to play back uh, videotapes, for instance. As the, the videotape types change and the formats change, and now it's shifted almost completely to digital, we sort of have to follow suit, but we follow suit maybe 15 years down the road rather than immediately. So we, we still deal with VHS tapes with videotapes while, you know, outside they're not being commercially produced, but we still have some of these um, that we need to address and even older formats that we need to address in terms of preservation. How did you learn these skills and do you think it would be beneficial for more people in librarianship and archives to know the basics of preservation? I think for sure that in the sort of educational career of, a, of an archivist or even a librarian, it would be very beneficial that one takes at least one course in uh, preservation, preferably with a hands-on component so that when you're out in the wild, you're not facing things that you've never seen before, literally never seen before, rather than just read about. Because trying to translate a technique from the page physically doing oftentimes doesn't lead to the best result. So I think, and it's just, you know, I'm looking back only on my experience. When I was working on my degree, it didn't have that opportunity. So I know that there are programs out there that focus just on preservation, but I think any library school, for instance, I would hope that that becomes a component. So you've had your conversation with Anselm. Do you have any questions relating to what you and he talked about before we talk about the big picture? Anselm talked about preservation as a way to organize things. I'd like to talk about that a bit. So that is very archives, right? Because what archivists do, much more so than librarians, is they take a mass of disparate documents and they create something out of it, right? They create these collections. And so I'm also interested in this idea, right? The idea that 
organizing something goes hand in hand with preserving it, right? Keeping it into in, intact. I think that's a, a, a great way to put it. And on some smaller level, we do that in special collections as well, because when we just moving something from the general collection into special collections, which we have done on occasion, when we have noticed, oh, there is a book from the 19th century sitting on the, on the shelves, and it's actually comparatively rare. Maybe it shouldn't be just circulating. When we pull that into special collections, we are partially, you know, that is an act of preservation because we are taking it out of the general circulating. We're putting it into a more stable area, you know, and then we do the, and then we do the enclosures and all that. So we maybe don't do it as extensively as archives does, but we do by bringing it into that space, we do preserve it in part. And that does reorganize how it's treated. Does that go into how the archives previously said that keeping things in original order is part of preservation? Would you say that that's preservation too? Oh, I think that's really smart. Yes. So you're, what you're doing then is you're taking you're taking steps to preserve its original condition, not just in terms of physicality, but also intellectual organization. So yes, 100%. Where can we find information about these best practices? Do we have like a defined source where we can look to see on our best practices? Like, is there a website we can go to and look at? This is what you should do. I mean, there's lots of different organizations and locations. One that I have personally looked at is I've looked at the American Institute for Conservation and the Foundation for the Advancement in Conservation, so AIC and FAIC. One of the problems in librarianship is that we have lots and lots of abbreviations, and after a while you forget what they stand for and you just remember the letters. So I apologize if I do that to you. So the AIC and FAIC, their website is at culturalheritage.org, all one word, no hyphens or anything like that. And so they've got a lot of interesting resources and opportunities, and they keep track of workshops and things like that where you can learn more about this kind of work. What are some preservation issues with digital materials? So the thing with digital materials is that people assume that if it's digital, it's permanent, right? There's no physical object to decay. And unfortunately, that's really not true, right? All data is actually physically stored somewhere. And that means that it can deteriorate. And there's a term for this called data rot, which is if inactive electronic media sit around, they can spontaneously become corrupted. And it doesn't take a lot of corrupted bytes or bits to destroy data permanently. It's actually surprisingly fragile. But even if you don't have to worry about data rot, obsolescence is this nightmare, right? And Anselm talked about this in terms of these are the media that he is dealing with, right? He still deals with VHS. He's maybe 15 years behind the curve in terms of what kinds of technology he is working with in terms of storage. So obsolescence then becomes this nightmare for those of us who don't have these machines handy because once the machine is no longer readable, it's gone. Essentially, it just becomes a piece of plastic and then data rot claims it. And this is then of incredible concern for us because so much of our society runs on digital spaces now. We have a term for this in special collections and archives. It's called born digital materials. And born digital materials are pretty concerning because they're super fragile. You know, like I was saying, you know, that medieval book, its binding may be falling apart, but at least it's physically there. Born digital materials can be easily destroyed with just the wrong touch of a button. And one of the ways in which we tried to deal with the fragility of digital records is ironically exactly the same way that ancient scribes and printers 
tried to cope with it as well. Namely, get as many copies as you can and spread them out so that if something happens to one of them, the others are still okay. And one of the places that you see this is with the Internet Archive, who are trying to archive the web. And they do it by doing web crawls, where they will take images, take photos, basically, of every part of the web over time, and then store that information away so that if the website goes down, you can still find that information using the Wayback Machine on the Internet Archive. And we will periodically point the Internet Archive towards our sites to make sure that they capture that information as well. It's a huge can of worms. Do you always want to be able to undo conservation, and why? Yes, you always want to be able to undo conservation, which doesn't necessarily seem intuitive. But if somebody in the future comes across an item and they have to do further conservation work because time has marched on and the item has deteriorated, being able to undo the previous work without inflicting damage on the item means that their repairs are going to take less time. Previous preservation techniques sometimes caused damage, right? And if you make the preservation or the conservation reversible or easily reversible, then there is less of a likely chance of long-term damage because you haven't done something irrevocable. And that's very important. So it's one of the stranger aspects of this kind of work that you want to be able to reverse things. Whereas you would think that fixing something, you don't want it to be unfixable. What is an example of a conservation or preservation technique that can be reversed easily? And then what's an example of something that can't be? A simple and very common repair is kozo paper. Some is also called Japanese paper. It's made out of mulberry bark, and it is very, very strong and also very, very thin. And that can be then affixed using wheat starch, right? If you've ever made wheat paste, at a flour paste at home to make a homemade glue, that's basically what you've got here. And that is water-soluble. So you can then reinforce the item, but you can always know that you can pull that back because the kozo is only loosely affixed with that wheat starch that if you have to, you can very delicately brush it with water and get it loose. And then in terms of a disaster where something can't be reversed. So at one point, they decided that a really good way to protect medieval manuscripts would be to laminate them. And that was a nightmare, right? It would, it basically destroyed them permanently. Because even if we ignore the fact that glue, like that, the kind of glue that is used for that, would eventually turn acidic and start to eat the paper or the parchment, on top of that, there was no way for it to off-gas. And so what you would be left with would be you would have the off-gassing is all things, you know, as paper ages, it releases gases. And those gases then leave, and the paper is deteriorating slightly, but it's not terrible. It's natural, right? If you sealed it in an impermeable envelope like that, particularly one where it was basically pushed right up against it and held in place by glue, you basically wound up with manuscripts that were cooking themselves in their own juices. And if you've got a way to take that kind of glue off an entire surface of an entire object without destroying it in the process, I think that there is a librarian-specific Nobel Prize for you, because if you can do it easily and safely, oh my god, because that is very, very hard to reverse. Both Anselm and Michelle talk about having to prioritize preservation and conservation as they go along in this process, and it seems like resources or lack of resources has a lot to do with this process of having to prioritize things. Absolutely. 
it's an ongoing problem that we don't have infinite time, infinite money, and infinite materials. So because we don't have all of those things, and we need all of those things to do this, we have to choose and select things because we have 90 to 100,000 items in the collection. In an ideal world, you would do loving conservation and preservation work for every single one of those. But that is a truckload of work and time and money, and we just don't have it. And that is, unfortunately, the, the, the world we live in, that we can't, we can't do it all, right? In an ideal world, I would have every single item in special collections would be encapsulated or in a box, all of it, just to add that extra layer of protection so that if you walked into our stacks, you would see nothing but a series of identical blue boxes. And it would be, on the one hand, a little bit of a bummer because things wouldn't look as pretty, but it would be better for their preservation. But there is no way that we could actually put all of them in enclosures. And that's and that's a really low-level intervention just to put them in boxes. But we can't do that because we don't have the time and we don't have the money and we don't have the materials. And this is definitely like a problem for all libraries and museums, and it's not just here at Mizzou. Oh, for sure, right? We don't have, you know, that's the state of the, you know, nobody has infinite time, money, and resources. The only kinds of institutions that can really pull that level of work off would be ones with really, really large budgets and really, really tiny collections. Like, just to think about it, right, if we have 100,000 items, I once worked out how long would it take to re-catalog all of them, and that can be done relatively quickly. And I still came up with a number, something like 38 to 40 years of nonstop, full-time, all you were doing was cataloging. Making a conservation assessment and then conserving every one of those items would take vastly longer. It would, it would be a huge task. So that was our episode on repairs and enclosures. We hope you've enjoyed it and that you've gotten some insight into the work we do. Next time, We'll talk about digitization and the MU Digital Library. Until then, we hope to see you in the library soon. Life Among the Shelves is recorded by Macy Love and John Henry Adams and edited by Joseph Sabo. Thanks to Michelle Dorsey and Ansem Hulsbergen for agreeing to speak with us and also to the Digital Media Lab at the University Libraries for giving us a space to record it. Our theme song is Motivate Me by Mix Ond promoted by Free Stock Music. Life Among the Shelves is licensed as an attribution, non-commercial, share-alike, Creative Commons license.